And let's pray before we read this very familiar text this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are a God who chooses to speak and that you've chosen to speak to us by your word. We're thankful that you've not only given us your word, but that you have poured out your spirit, you and the Son pouring the spirit out into the world to take up residence in us. That he might take that word and apply it to our hearts and our souls and our minds. Father, we would hear from you today. For different needs that each of our souls have, the soul that is languishing, the soul that is tired, the soul that is trapped in darkness, the soul that is burdened with sin, the soul that is burdened with the guilt of sin, the soul that has been in high trials and tribulations, the soul that feels cold or lukewarm. The soul that feels alone and in need. And we could go on, Father, you know what each soul needs in this room. And we pray in only the way that you can that you would speak to us as we each have need. Your Spirit would apply this word in such a way that we would all walk from this place knowing we have heard from you. Preach a much better sermon than I have, O oh Lord. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 3, verse 16, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I was looking forward this weekend uh, sharing Dr. Carl Truman with you, a uh, friend. Uh, as you know, uh, Carl was supposed to do our Magnify Conference this weekend. He was supposed to be preaching here this morning. And I was looking forward to you hearing from him. Uh, he and I have been emailing back and forth all week. Uh, he had to, uh, at the last minute this week, cancel um, due to some health issues. He's fine, but need to cancel. He told me in the very first email where he was having to cancel, he said, Jason, he said, in 20 years of public speaking and preaching, I've never had to cancel. Uh, You'll remember that he wasn't the first to cancel on us. Uh, this was about two and a half months ago. We had Conrad and Bayway uh, lined up. He and I had agreed upon that about a year and a half ago. Uh, Conrad is in Africa, and he was going to be here on a speaking tour. And I'd said, oh, could you come to URC and do our Magnify conference? He said, I'd be happy to. That was about a year and a half ago. He emailed me about two and a half months ago to say, Jason, I forgot to put it on my calendar. I'm going to be back in Africa at that time. In 20 years of ministry, I've never done this with my calendar. 
Uh, so URC is being uniquely used in the kingdom. Uh, we are being used to keep these men humble. Uh, they've never done these things in 20 years, but both have now. Uh, but I hope that they will both be back with us. They both promise that they will come back at a later time. And so I will work on that on my end and getting them back here so you can benefit from their ministry. So I'm in an airport this week, not expecting to preach Sunday and thinking, what do I preach? Uh, and I thought about John 3.16. I'll explain a little later in the sermon why that was on my mind. Uh, but it's a good text for Advent. Uh, we, if we were following the church calendar, we would have started Advent preaching last Sunday. We didn't. Uh, Pastor Kevin kind of followed up on uh, the Matthew series. Um, I was planning on beginning the Advent series next week as we look at the names of Christ in Isaiah 9, and then we'll look at different names of Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures, New Testament Scriptures in the evening service. Uh, but this is a good text to begin an Advent series, and it feels like, ah, next week we were supposed to start Advent. If we were following a church calendar, which we don't, we would have started Advent last week, so why not start it this week? We're just a mess, so why not just do it? So that's what we're doing. Uh, so John 3.16 this week, uh, as we look at it together. And why John 3.16 is a good Advent text? Well, because it tells us of the great gift that has been given to us, the greatest of all gifts. And it does it in the most simple and most clear of ways, as you know. I remember uh, the first time that I heard John 3.16, I was in a car in the back seat. Leah and I had just started dating for maybe a month. We were in the back seat of the car. My mom was in the passenger seat, and my stepdad was in the front seat of the car driving, and we were driving into this small town in central Illinois. And as we got to the city square of this small central town in Illinois, they had on their sign the church fathers and mothers as this, church, as this city had been incorporated or instituted had erected this sign and the sign had what we often say just the address. It had the address John 3.16 and then it said welcome to such and such a town. And I remember my mom, I had, was newly converted, had only been a Christian for a few months, and so I was overly zealous and overly loudmouthed and overly obnoxious in my Christian faith. And I remember my mom sitting in the front seat and looking over her shoulder at me and saying, Jason, do you know what John 3.16 is? And I didn't. I couldn't quote it. I had no clue what it was. And my mom went on to quote it. Most Christians, unless you're young in the faith, like I was on that little trip into that central Illinois town, uh, you know John 3.16. Uh, you probably have it memorized, 90% of you in the room. Uh, it is most likely one of the first verses that you memorized. Uh, you know it through and through. In many ways, it's become commonplace. It didn't occupy my mind much that day uh, beyond that because we were in that little town. My mom and I, I had given it to her for Mother's Day. She had given it to my birthday, for me on my birthday. They both fell on the same day that year. Uh, we had given each other the gift of going skydiving that day. And so uh, we were going into that town to go to this little airport so that we could jump out of a completely good airplane and free fall for 60 seconds in the air. Uh, and so I 
I didn't think at all about John 3.16 the rest of the day. But a couple of days later, I was convicted that I should have known that, and so opened up my Bible to John 3.16, and I started committing that verse to memory. It was the first verse that I memorized because I didn't want to look like a fool again. I started memorizing that verse. I've come, though I would say, over the years to truly know it more and more. Not that it's become more memorized. I had it memorized at the very beginning of my Christian life and my life in faith, but it's that I've come to understand it more. And I've come to treasure it more and come to see the majesty and the glory of it more. And any of you that have been in the Christian life for any period of time, no doubt you come across a verse like this and it becomes more meaningful to you. There was one old preacher who said it this way. He said, most young preachers have sermons upon it, meaning John 3.16. Older men learn that its meaning must be felt and thought rather than spoken. Now, it's true that it needs to be spoken. It needs to be declared. That's what we're going to do this morning. But I also understand what he means. There's a sense in which you begin to understand this verse and feel it and can think it better than you can say it. And I hope in some way this morning the Spirit works on you in that way. Martin Luther once said about this verse, the famous reformer, he said, this is the Bible in miniature. John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. And it is. Three simple points this morning from a text that you know well. Three simple points. God's great love, God's great gift, and God's great promise. God's great love, God's great gift, and God's great promise. First, God's great love. We aren't looking at the verses that come before John 3.16, but if you and I were to look at the verses that came before John 3.16, we would read John 3.15, and we would know that there's a kind of question that's hanging in the air as a result of John 3.15. If you remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus, that Pharisee, has come to Jesus at night, and he's come to Jesus with a question. He's inquiring. He wants to know whether Jesus is the one that was prophesied. Is He the Christ? Is He the Messiah that was to come? And Jesus will answer Nicodemus' question, and then John 3.15, He will say to Nicodemus, He will say that the Son of Man will be lifted up. That is, he says of himself, the Christ, the Son of Man, he will be crucified. He will be lifted up. He will suffer severely. Severely, He will suffer violently. And so the question that hangs in the air after John 3.15 is why? Any Jew standing there and hearing this, Nicodemus hearing this, any Jew reading the Gospel of John, the very first question that would go through their mind upon hearing John 3.15, that the Son of Man must be lifted up, is why? Why would the Christ, the servant of God, the one who has come into the world, why must He violently suffer? John 3.16 is John's answer. And the answer is this. 
for God so loved. Why must the Christ suffer because of God's great love? It's the most striking of revelations. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Most striking of revelations. Why? Because God so loved. If you think back with me, you and I, it doesn't, we don't find that so striking today, but I want you to think back with me, if you will. Think about history. Think about other religions. And if you think historically and you think about the gods of other religions, there are none who are said to be so loving. There are gods of war, there are gods of storms, there are gods that are marked by lust, that are marked by beauty, there are gods that are marked by power, there are gods over love. There are gods that have love for other gods or that have love for themselves, but a god who is love, that's strange. That's uniquely Christian. A god who is marked by so great a love, is foreign except in Christianity. The idea of a God of great love, it isn't so strange to us. In fact, it has become something common to us, but it's strange in history and it's strange in much of the world today. It's just not simply strange to you and I because we live in a culture that has been influenced by Christianity. When you ask the average person on the street, even if they don't believe in the Christian God, if they believe in some kind of higher being, if they believe that there is some maker, some creator, or some God that controls all things, if you ask them what is that God like, the answer almost always is, well, He's loving. Where do they come up with such an idea? From Christianity. For God so loved. There's never a thought in the ancient world that God loves like this. There's some, even Christians, who want to say that the Son is loving, but the Father wasn't loving, not so much. No, that's not what John says. Notice what John says. John says, God so loved. God loved. As we've made clear in our triune God evening series that we finished a couple of weeks ago, what is true of the Son is true of the Father. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What marks the Son marks the Father. The distinguishing factor between the Father and the Son is that the Son is begotten and the Father begets. In every other way, the Son and the Father are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What is an attribute of the Son is an attribute of the Father. What is an attribute of the Father is an attribute of the Son. If the Son is loving then the Father is loving. They're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The argument goes that Jesus' death upon the cross made God the Father loving. But that's not what John says. John says, for God so loved. When you think about God, Do you think of God being love? 
Or do you think that he was made loving by what someone did, or what Christ did, or what you do? Or do you see God in your mind's eye as love? John does. He so loved. Do you remember when Abraham walked up and marched up Mount Moriah in that famous Genesis 22 passage where God is trying Abraham and tells him to go up and to sacrifice his son. Do you remember that passage? The passage that is filled with all kinds of verbiage. He tells Abraham there, he says, take your son, your only son. And then throughout that passage in Genesis 22, there's an emphasis upon that father-son relationship. Father-son is mentioned 12 times in 16 verses. 12 times in 16 verses. There's only one recorded conversation in all of Scripture between Abraham and Isaac. And it begins with Isaac saying to Abraham, My father. And Abraham replies to Isaac by saying, Here I am, my son. When God calls Abraham to this test in this passage, he piles up the words. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And here's an interesting fact for you. The first time the word love is ever used in the Bible, that's it right there. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Genesis 22. And take him up, Abraham, and sacrifice him for me. The test is clear. Abraham, I know you love your son. But do you love me so much that you will sacrifice your son? And we could say, if we were looking at that passage, for Abraham so loved God, that he gave up his only begotten son. It's a test. You see the intensity of Abraham's love for God and that he is willing to give up his son. Do you see what John is doing for you here? He is just flipping in and he's saying, For God so loved. He so loved. You want to see the intensity of His love? He so loved that He gave up His only begotten Son. I mentioned this one time before in preaching. There's a famous moment in church history where Martin Luther, the great reformer, is sitting with his wife Katie, and they are reading here Genesis 22. And as he's reading this account from Genesis 22, and and she is hearing it for the first time. Katie will exclaim to Martin Luther, she will say, I do not believe it. God would not have treated His Son, meaning Abraham, would not have treated His Son like that. And Luther responded to Katie, his bride, but Katie, He did. He did. For God so loved. 
John is declaring to us that God in the sacrifice of His Son has shown the intensity of His love. He so loved. That's where the emphasis is in this passage. It's on the so. John wants us to understand the measure and the expanse of God's love. Loving is... Love is giving by nature. It is more than feeling. It's filled with action. There is no such thing as a love that does not sacrifice, that does not give. And what John is saying is there has been no greater gift. You can't dream of something bigger. You can't imagine something that could be more. He gave up His only Son. Why? Because He so loved. They're investors that if they fall in love with your idea for a new company, they'll invest what they have. You want the investors that have a lot to give. His love is not a trickle. It's not even a stream. It's an ocean of love. And so when He gives, He gives. He could have not given anything more than Himself. He gives His very self in the person of His Son. How much does God love? He so loves. He so perfectly loved. He so immensely loved. He so amazingly loved. He so righteously loved that He gave up His only begotten Son. It is a gift without equal. He gifts His Son. Not just any Son, but His Son that has eternally dwelled with Him for all of eternity where they have known perfect love and perfect communion and perfect union with one another. It is that Son that He not just sends into the world, but He sends for the world. So love. It's a gift without equal. To what end would God give His only Son? Well, that leads to our second point, and that's God's great gift. God's great gift. I was in Atlanta this week, was driving into the airport, and outside of Atlanta there was this massive billboard. Uh, one of those billboards that it can't get any bigger. And on that billboard outside of Atlanta, there was this verse. This is why I thought about preaching this text. So I got to the Atlanta airport. I'm thinking, what do I preach on Sunday? And ah, I'll preach what I saw on the billboard. <laughs> but the reason was this. It had John 3.16 and it wasn't just the address, it was the entire verse was quoted there in big, bold letters. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then in parentheses, in smaller lettering underneath those big, bold letters of the verse, it said, this is true even for, and then it gave a political affiliated group. And my heart sunk. 
No doubt whoever paid for this massive billboard thought that they were cute and thought that they were smart. But they just showed their incredible ignorance and their incredible arrogance. Because you could put and should put every single type of person in that parenthesis. We see that God, quote, loved the world. What does that mean? Well, 1 John 2.2 gives us some insight. They're the same author. John uses the same word, world, in the same theological context, and he writes this, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Christ is a propitiation for sin, that is, He atones for sin, and by atoning for our sin, He satisfies the wrath of God. The wrath of God is no longer aimed at those whom Christ has propitiated their sin. God's wrath is no longer aimed at them. That person is saved. But John says Christ is a propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, what's he doing then? Is he saying that there is universal salvation, that every single person therefore is saved because the wrath of God towards all mankind has been put away? And the answer is a categorical no. What is he saying? He's enlarging the vision of his readers who are Jews. He's giving them a bigger vision of what God has intended and what God has done. There is a much bigger vision, a grander vision, as he's doing here in the gospel, for God so loved the world. As has been said, John does not mean the world in totality, but in diversity. That is, Christ came to live and to die for the world that is not just for you Jews, not just for you children of Abraham by the flesh, but for even the Gentiles. For the world. God loves the world, Jew and Gentile. What is John doing? He's pointing out that not only is the love of God great, but the gift of salvation is great. Because it's given to sinners. That word world, especially in the book of John, it, it doesn't just mean mankind. It often what he is meaning is sinful mankind. For God so loved sinful mankind. For God so loved the world. It's a great gift. A great salvation. I think that the average Christian knows that salvation is by grace. I think the average Christian will articulate that. And yet I also think that the average Christian, at least the average Christian I've met, has at least some thought in the back of their mind that God saved me because of who I am or who I will be or what I will give. 
as if we deserve that grace, but then it is no longer grace, and it is no longer a great gift, and it's no longer a great salvation. Salvation is wholly an act of God's sovereign, free grace, and that differentiates it from everything else in the entire world of religions. It's an act of a sovereign, free grace. Remember the first time this really registered in my mind was when I was reading through Deuteronomy. And God is speaking to the nation of Israel there in Deuteronomy 7. I knew grace. I could articulate grace. I, I think it was in the back of my mind. It was very much, uh, Jason, in some way, it was because you were a little better than other people, or maybe it's because of what you will offer the kingdom when you're saved. Or I remember reading Deuteronomy 7, And it just jumping off the page at me where God is saying to the nation of Israel, this is why I chose you. Why is it that God chose the nation of Israel? Why did he make them his people? Why didn't he make the Girgashites his people? Why not the Amorites? Why not the Lakota Indians? Why not Thai people? Why did he make Israel his chosen people? This is what he says in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now why? Here's the answer. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Well then why? Why did the Lord set His love upon them? He says, it wasn't that, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because. Why did the Lord set His love upon them? It is because the Lord loves you. Why did He set His love upon them? Because He loves them. Notice what He says, it is not. It was not because of who they were, i.e. more in number than any other people. It was not because of what they had done. They had just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years due to their rebelliousness and their disobedience. It was not because of who they would become. Israel's story in the Old Testament is one of continual disobedience. The Lord counted Israel as His treasured possession because He loved them. And why did He love them? Because He loved them. There's nothing that causes. There's nothing that cajoles. There's nothing that forces. There's nothing that directs Him. They're His because He loves them. And He loves them because He loves them. He gives the great gift of salvation. It is a gift, the greatest of gifts. God saves those He loves and He loves those He saves and He saves them out of sheer love. It's an undeserved love. It's grace. It's just grace. And what is attached to this gift? Well, finally, the great promise. The great promise. The final clause says that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the great promise. The Son of God was given 
because of so great a love. And He was given so every single person who believes in Him, who casts their whole being upon Him, will find like Abraham that God has provided a lamb. This is the great promise. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now you think, but should, or some of your translations in the English will say might. That sounds pretty tenuous. That sounds like it's really in question, but that's not John's point. That's not what he's doing here. No, he's making a promise. The should or the might in your translations and your versions of the Bible, they don't convey doubt. They convey certainty. It's purpose that's being expressed here. He sent his son so that... We should so that purpose. There is a plan in sending the Son, a plan that can't fail. A plan that will be realized. Our faith will be realized. Our joy will be complete. Our salvation will be consummated. This can't fail. It's a great promise for all who believe. You're not going to perish. You're going to have everlasting life. Why? Because the Son was delivered up. And why was He delivered up? Because God so loved. And because we won't perish, we'll have everlasting life. And what will that look like? It will be being caught up after all of these trials and all of these tribulations and all of the trivialities of this world and all of the pains of this world and all of the discomforts of this world, we are caught up into His very presence who defines beauty and who is love. And we shall dwell in the midst of His glorious love for all of eternity. That's the promise. But notice, it's for those who believe. Salvation is not based upon merit. It's not based upon doing the right things. This holy God will never be satisfied with the works of all men. Neither is our justification based upon the infusion of Christ's righteousness, whereby His righteousness is put in us and we cooperate with that righteousness and it somehow grows in us so that we reach some standard of righteousness and so therefore are acceptable in the sight of God. No, it is not based upon that. No, our salvation is solely based upon the person of Christ and His righteousness, which is imputed to us, credited to our account, and received by faith alone. The Son of God came into this world and He lived a perfectly holy, righteous life. That is, every thought He had, every desire that He had, every affection that He had, every deed that He did, it was all up to the standard of God. He lived a perfectly righteous life. So that when He was delivered up for us on that cross, when the Son of God was lifted up, He was a perfectly righteous sacrifice upon that cross. And our guilt and our sin was imputed to Him. He became sin for us. And that righteousness that was His is then credited to our account so that we now before the face of God, that as He looks upon those who are in Christ, He looks upon them and He sees the righteousness of His Son. Perfect. 
holy, without spot, without wrinkle. That it can only be received by faith. Only by faith. There's no other way to access that righteousness. There's no other way to receive it but by faith. It's long been, for millennia now, theologians have defined faith by three things. Often say it's the way that cat sounds like it should be spelled. Cat. K-A-T. It's knowledge, assent, trust. Cat. Faith includes knowledge. You have to know that the Son of God came into the world. You have to know that He lived a righteous life. You have to know that He died a perfect death. You have to know. You have to have that knowledge. There has to be a cognitive understanding. But you see, knowledge isn't enough. You also have to scent that this is true. Not just that you have knowledge. All of you in this room this morning cannot walk out here apart from saying that you have that knowledge. It's just been declared to you. You have the knowledge. The next question is whether you've assented, whether you've actually assented that, you know what, that is actually true. It's not just that I have heard it. It's not just that I know it. I assent that that's true. That the Son of God came into the world, that He lived for sinners, and that He died for sinners upon the cross. You have to assent that that's true. But you see, that's not enough. James says that the demons believe and they shudder. They have knowledge. They assent. They said, we know that you are the Christ. They knew. What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? They have knowledge. They assent. But they didn't trust. No, you have to have knowledge, you have to have assent, and you have to trust. You have to trust in this Savior, where you cast yourself upon Him, your whole life upon Him, that He alone, Christ alone, is where your salvation is found. That His life lived for you is the life of righteousness that now belongs to you. His atoning death upon the cross is the satisfaction that is offered for you before the throne of God. You own Christ. You with empty hands have no longer clinging to this world, but with empty hands come to the cross and cling. Because you know that it's in Christ alone that is your salvation. Knowledge is sent. Trust. B.B. Warfield, a 19th century Princeton theologian, said this about faith. He said, The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior in whom it rests. And then he said this wonderfully. This is wonderfully important. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. It's all in Christ. And all you and I are doing is simply receiving. It's all of grace. And we simply receive. A great love, which manifests itself in a great gift, 
which realizes itself in a great promise. A few applications to close. First, I want you to know and meditate upon the fact that God is love. I want you in your mind's eye and in your, the eyes of your heart, as Paul will speak about, and in the very depths and recesses of your soul, to truly believe and to truly know that God is love. It's not that Christ had to do something to make God loving. He is love. It's not that you have to do the right thing for God to be loving towards you. No. God is love. We don't cause Him to be anything. He already is. And it's the greatest possible loves you and I can ever experience, that we can ever know. You and I have this concept of love because of God. That's the only reason you and I even think upon love. That's the reason that we will go chasing after people to fall in love with. That's why we will seek friendships and to grow in love. That's why we will imagine being in love. All of it because it's rooted in God that God is love. The only reason you and I know love is because God is love. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. You know love and you desire love and you seek love because God is love. You'll never be satisfied apart from having God. Because that's a love without end. It's a love that knows no depth and knows no height and knows no breadth and knows no length. It just goes on and on and on. And it satisfies the soul. If when you think of God, you don't think of Him as being love and being the fountain of love and you're thinking of Him wrongly. I'm fearful that so many of us think of Him as some kind of ogre that's exacting, that sits up in the sky and is just ready with that heavy hand, and we forget that He is love. Second, receive this gift. He extends a great gift to you. The free offer of the gospel, the free offer of salvation is made to everyone. For God so loved the world, it's offered to you. All you have to do is receive it. You say, but I am a sinner through and through. Or maybe you think I somehow need to get in a little better place? No. The salvation is not found by seeking it. It's not found by aspiring to it. It's not found by climbing or ascending to heaven. It's realized by this grace flowing down. This is the testament of the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Say, well, I believe, but I'm not quite sure completely trusted in Christ. I want to believe. You know, there was, in my early Christian life, there was no passage, I think, that meant more to me than that wonderful account in the Gospel of Mark, where there's that father with the ailing child, and 
he goes to Christ and he wants Christ to heal that child. And, and he says to Christ, if it is possible, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Christ <laughs> responds and he says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And you remember that cry of that father? He cries out and he says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's, that's just honesty. That's a good cry. I believe. But help me in my unbelief. That's a good prayer to pray over and over. And you'll notice that when he says this to Christ, Christ does not rebuke him. No, he's compassionate towards him. He encourages him in that account. If you go back to the beginning of this passage, you have Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament Scriptures. He knows what the Messiah and the Christ is to look like. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus at night. He's a coward. And he has knowledge. And he's a coward. And he comes to him at night. Because he doesn't want anyone to see that he's interacting with this Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him in any way. He welcomes him in. He's the gentle shepherd, the good shepherd who encourages those who have weak beginnings. He knows that He came to live and to die for sinners. It's not a surprise to Him that you're a sinner. He's the shepherd that goes after the one lost sheep. He's the one that turns the house upside down to find the one lost coin. He seeks those that are His. And so you find that twinge of, ha, ah, I think I want to believe in this Christ. Then you go running to Him and you cast all your cares upon Him. You fall at the foot of the cross. And you cry out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. He answers those prayers. Third, to the Christian, I want to say this. Where there is pride in us about what we are, about what we have, or what we believe, or what we know, or how we live, that has to be killed. That has no place in yours and my minds, in yours and my hearts, surely not in yours and my mouths, because we know that we are saved for God so loved. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And yet what we will do is we will look down upon those outside the Christian faith and we will think, how stupid are they? How could they not get it like I got it? And instead of having compassion and wanting to see them come to saving faith, we turn our backs upon them because you know what? They are deserving of all that they are incurring because they are so dumb not to realize what I realize. No. It's all of grace. What I have, I have by grace. 
What I am in Christ, I am by grace. So even a fellow brother and sister, it is never, you know what, I look down on them because I know more than them, or my life looks better than them in Christ. No. Because if I have arrived at any greater level of knowledge or any greater level of living, it is by His grace. It is grace. Pride has no place in the Christian mind, in the Christian heart, in the Christian soul. It is the most antithetical thing to the gospel there could be. Oh, it's humility. Humility in our minds and our thinking, humility in our hearts, humility in our conversations with each other. How often we will spur one another on in pride and joking about others and making fun of others and talking about, oh, how rudimentary the faith of that person is or, oh, why are they still trapped in that sin and, oh, I can't believe it. No, it's all, all of grace. That means we should be all of humility. When we come to Christmas, humility should be one of the things you and I are regularly reflecting upon. You know, the Puritans, and there's an ill side of this, a bad side of this, but they used to often talk of having a worm theology. We need a little more worm theology today. We think too highly of ourselves. Number one, theologian saying, old theologian saying, oh, I believe we're all worms, but I'm a glow worm. <laughs> Maybe. You're still a worm. And yet with that humility, this is our final point, it's not that kind of groveling in the dust that is to mark the Christian. That's the negative side of worm theology, where it's this kind of introspective, kind of I hate myself and can't believe what an awful sinner I am. And it's just kind of this morose kind of dwelling and, and champing the fact that I am such an awful sinner and oh, this is what I... No, that is not as well what this passage would encourage you and I in. No, there should also be rejoicing. How can you read something like John 3.16 and begin to contemplate it and begin to understand it and not rejoice? How can you not be filled with joy? There are too many dour Christians. You need to remind your faces every once in a while of the great joy of our salvation. There should be smiles. There should be a lot less complaining about all of the things in our life and all of the different trials and all of the different tribulations. There are hard things, but there is joy in the midst of this because we have so great a salvation, because we have such a great gift, because we have such a great God of love. There should be not only prayers of intercession where you and I are on our, our knees and what we're constantly praying about is what we don't have and what we need. No, there should be all kinds of prayers of thanksgiving. Why? Because we have received so much. There is to be joy. Christians are to look drastically different than the world around us. And one of the ways is that we are filled with joy. We have received the greatest of all possible gifts. Tell your face every once in a while. 
Allow your heart to flutter every once in a while. Allow it to inform your conversations with one another once in a while. Allow it to inform your prayers once in a while. Ah. And you and I think about the great salvation that we have been given and this great gift of Christ Jesus by the God that has so greatly loved us. Joy has to be one of the things that marks us no matter what is happening in our lives. Some of you, I know, you, you are up to your neck. It feels like it has already gone over your mouth and it's coming over your nose and it feels like you're going to drown in the midst of the trials that you're going through and the difficulties and the pains that you're in, the hurts that you're experiencing. And not to minimize that, it is deep water. But you see, even in the midst of that, we have this promise that those floods don't overtake the Christian. We're not going to perish. We have everlasting life. And you have reason to rejoice. For God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you are a God of such great love, that you would love sinners such as us. And we're thankful that it is all of grace, that all that we can do is return to you in thanksgiving. We pray that you would enliven us with joy, that you would settle us with peace, that you would encourage us in humility. And we would pray for those in this room, no doubt there are dozens in this room this morning who do not know the joy of salvation in Christ and who are even now perishing. We pray that in your magnanimous love, you would pour out grace upon their soul today and that they would say, this is the day that I came to saving faith. May you flood their souls with your love so they can find the sweetest thing in this life and the life to come. That they would know all the joys that come with having Christ as Lord and Savior and that you would carry them home to glory. I thank you for being such a great God of love who so loved that you gave such a great gift that we might have such a great promise. What a delight it is to be your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.